Today, a three-ingredient recipe for political liberty and the upside of tyranny. This is Good in Theory. I'm Cliff Mark. We've been talking about Greek stuff for a while now. Athens, Plato, Socrates, democracy, oligarchy. And we're going to keep talking about this stuff. But I haven't said much yet about how Greece is organized politically. And this is important because if you want to understand someone's philosophy about politics, it really helps to have some grip on the kind of regime they were living under, on what they were thinking of when they talked about politics. And the first thing you need to know about ancient Greece is that, politically speaking, there was no such thing. There was a geographical area where most people spoke Greek and they worshipped Zeus and they dug Homer, but there was no political unit. There was no capital of ancient Greece. There was no central government. The basic political unit in ancient Greece was the polis, P-O-L-I-S. This word is usually translated as city-state, and it is the topic of today's episode. Athens was a polis, Sparta was a polis, Corinth was a polis. In total, there were about 1,000 to 1,500 independent Greek polis, that's the plural, in ancient Greece. They all had their own governments and their own laws and their own armies. Sometimes... These city-states would work together, as when many of them allied together to expel an invading Persian army. But most of the time, they spent their energy fighting each other. And that meant that ancient Greece as a whole never got together and built a great empire or great pyramids or got as rich as some of their historical neighbors. It stayed a grab bag of small-scale city-states that squabbled amongst themselves until... Larger, more centralized states took them over. But even if they weren't as rich or powerful as their neighbors, the Greeks thought that the polis was special, and they were proud to live as citizens of a small city rather than as subjects of a great empire. And the history of political thought seems to agree, because our word politics comes from polis, The political studies department at Cambridge University is called polis, not nation-state or empire. And people still spend a lot more time talking about these Greek cities than about other things that you might think are more important. When I was studying politics and philosophy at university, I heard a lot more about Athens and Sparta than I did about Persia or Egypt or even Rome or the Soviet Union. Why? What did the polis have that its historical neighbors did not that made it so special? In a word, the answer to that question is freedom. I don't mean Greek citizens had more freedom of religion or speech or consumer choice. They didn't really. They figured that they were free because they were the only people who governed themselves instead of being governed by others. We can illustrate the difference by comparing them with one of their unfree neighbors, the Persian Empire. The first Persian Empire was the biggest empire yet in history. It went from Eastern Europe all the way to where Pakistan is now. It had some of Northeast Africa. There were many different people and language groups, 
and they were all brought together because the Persians conquered them. The empire was rich, it was cultured, it was advanced and impressive in many ways. But the people living under this empire were not free. It may seem obvious that the non-Persian peoples who were living under Persian rule because they'd been conquered, it might be obvious that they're unfree because foreign rule obviously violates the Mel Gibson conception of freedom. That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! But for the Greeks, it wasn't just having a foreign master that made you a slave. They would have said that even the Persians living under a Persian king were slaves because they had no say in making the laws. They had no say in deciding war. They had no say on anything. The king made the rules. The subjects obeyed. That made them unfree. When the Greeks talked about being free, they meant that instead of taking orders from a monarch or an aristocracy or some other authority, they governed themselves. They set and followed their own laws. And they thought that that was how humans were meant to live and how any self-respecting group of men would live. They were proud of their freedom and they guarded it with spear and shield and they kind of looked down on people who didn't even seem to mind living by other people's rules. And from the point of view of our democratic age where popular sovereignty is really important, having a community of free and independent citizens collectively governing themselves sounds like a good idea to a lot of people. And this whole idea really got started in the polis of ancient Greece. What is a polis, then? I've said that it's not a nation-state, but a city-state. But it's also not like a modern city. If you're thinking Beijing, Toronto, Paris, you're thinking of the wrong thing. It was a lot smaller in population, and less urban, but it was bigger geographically. So if we take Athens for an example, Athens's territory covered an area called Attica, which was about 2,600 square kilometers or 1,000 square miles. So for Canadians, that is half of a Prince Edward Island. For Americans, it's a Rhode Island. And for Europeans, it's a Luxembourg. If you lived anywhere in this big territory called Attica, you were considered an Athenian. And most of that territory was farmland. But somewhere, the group would kind of pick a spot as a citadel, as a place that was easy to defend. So in Athens, you have the Acropolis, which is a big, easy-to-defend mountain. And around that stronghold of defense, a city grew up. Marketplace, a place to conduct politics, temples, and lots of residences. Athens really did make a city center, but a lot of polis didn't really have that. As for population, there was a wide range. Most of these city-states only had a few hundred or a couple thousand citizens. But the biggest polis, which was Athens by miles, had 30,000 to 50,000 citizens at its peak. The ideal, according to Aristotle, was somewhere in the middle. He thought that your polis should be as big as it can be where you can still gather all the citizens in one physical place and they can still hear each other deliberate, hear each other speak. And he figured that amounted to about 5,000 guys. But in the polis, in addition to these 5,000 citizens, there are also women, slaves, foreigners, 
poor people who don't qualify to be a citizen because they're too poor. So the citizens were actually a minority in every polis. But they're the ones governing themselves. So the whole freedom thing only applies to them, and we're going to be talking mostly about them. To summarize, we have a territory with a town at the center somewhere, a few hundred or a few thousand citizens, plus all the other residents. Mostly, the citizens are farmers, because society is mostly agricultural, but you might have some craftsmen and merchants thrown in there. This is the overall shape and scale of the communities that we're working with. This is where political freedom was born. Why? Why here? Was the love of liberty in the Greek DNA? Were they geniuses? Was there something in the yogurt? These elements may have contributed something, but they weren't the only things, and they aren't the things I want to focus on today. Greece wasn't always like that. Before the whole ideology of the proud, free citizens, the Greeks lived under aristocracies where a really small group of very rich families ruled by tradition and as birthright. And to understand how we moved from there to political freedom, we're going to look at another couple pieces of the puzzle. And the first one I want to look at is the economy. I'm going to give you a hyper-simplified account of the economics of the ancient world. And if you want a more elaborate version of it, I recommend checking out Donald Kagan's Introduction to Greek History, which is an open course from Yale, and it's available as a podcast. I use it a lot as research for this episode. Also, I would recommend, if you want a more elaborate version, to look at Victor Davis Hanson's work, which Kagan draws on when he's writing his lectures. Anyway, this is the good in theory, tiny nutshell version of the story. To have a community of independent, self-governing farmers, you first need some independent farmers. And these are not necessarily easy to come by because normally ancient agricultural societies are divided into two parts. A very small class of rich people, royalty or aristocracy, and they own pretty much everything. And there's a very large class of poor people who work for and are totally dependent on the rich people. Sometimes there's a monarch at the top of these societies. You get a king or queen and technically they own all the land and they have ministers and helpers who they delegate responsibility to. But even if you don't have a king at the center, you get a kind of decentralized rule by aristocracy. These guys are born into their titles. They have vast estates of land and they usually rule absolutely on the local level. On a higher level, they might be in council with a few other aristocrats. But either way, most of these ancient agricultural societies are a two-tier enterprise. The richies and everyone else. And here's what happened in Greece. Way back, before there was really even Greek civilization as we know it, before Homer and Hesiod, there was one of these big empires with a powerful king at the center called Mycenae. And the Mycenaean civilization was advanced, rich, large, but at some point it fell apart. The central authority fell and there was chaos. There was a few hundred years that people used to refer to as the Greek Dark Ages. Famine, disease, war, loss of literacy, bad things happening. And politically and economically, it moved from a monarchy 
to an aristocracy, with nobles ruling like kings locally and maybe in council for bigger issues. They owned big estates and lots of people worked for them. And this is where something important happens. Because of all the bad stuff that was happening, there was a lot of depopulation, which meant, eventually, that there was some land going spare. And the aristocrats who ran everything, they started letting some common non-aristocrats own little pieces of land. Nothing big, maybe 10 acres or something, just enough to support yourself and your family. We're not sure exactly why or how this happened, but it happened. And according to Kagan and Hansen, this changed everything. Because first, it changed the incentives for the farmers. These guys knew they owned the land and they would pass it on to their kids, so they started working harder to improve it. They planted things like olive orchards and vineyards that wouldn't pay off for many, many years. And in general, it worked. Agricultural production went up, they improved their lot, and they even started developing land that wasn't as fertile, that wouldn't have been developed before, like up in the hills. And as these farms improved, these guys would be doing better. Maybe they could afford to even buy a couple of slaves to help them out. Now, not everyone had their own farms, but these people were doing comparatively well. And also, a lot of Greek cities were increasing trade and commerce. So there were people getting money in other ways than just owning land. And this is a great economic growth story. But the point I'm trying to get at is that economically we're no longer in a strictly two-tier society. There is now a third category of people who are not super rich, but who have just enough property not to be entirely dependent on the rich for their livelihoods, hopefully. And this matters because these small-scale family farm owners, they're the ones who are going to become the free citizens of the polis. And remember, this isn't just about having a little bit of money, it's also about independence. For example, if you lived in some small country or city where everyone makes $100,000 a year, but everyone works for the same company or the same few companies, you're going to have a really tough time achieving any kind of political freedom because the company owns everything and they're in control of your life. Having an independent livelihood is important for politics, but it's not the only important thing. Bringing liberty into the world isn't just a matter of squishing your own olives. If you want to change politics, you're going to need more leverage than that. Which brings me to my next puzzle piece. War. The most important function of government in the ancient world was to stop a bunch of strangers from turning up, killing all the men in the city, enslaving the women and children, and setting up shop where you used to live. And to stop people from doing that, the best tool was a strong army. And if it was strong enough, you could even use it to do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. Because in a no-growth agricultural economy where everyone's struggling, war and conquest is one of the only good ways to get more of whatever you need. I'm a political theory guy. I'm not a war guy, so this is going to be pretty superficial. But there are lots of ways you could do war in the ancient world. You could just mob up with a big crowd of people and run at the other guys. You could have archers, you could have cavalry, you could have infantry, and all kinds of combinations of those things. In some places, they rode war elephants. But in Greece, they had invented an innovative new way to make war, 
and it was their military trademark, and it was unbeatable at the time. And this military technology was called the hoplite phalanx. These words may be unfamiliar and sound complicated, but they're pretty simple once you explain them. Let's start with hoplite. A hoplite is a soldier. It's a heavy infantryman. He's a guy who wears bronze armor, helmet, chest plate, greaves, which are those bronze shin pads. And for weapons, he carries a long spear and a short sword to use if the spear breaks. And in his left hand, he has a giant shield. It's a round shield. It's made of heavy wood. It has two handles on the back. And sometimes it's even coated in bronze. The shield is called a hoplon. A hoplite is the guy who carries it. And the phalanx is a formation. It's what you get when you line up a whole bunch of hoplites shoulder to shoulder in a big long row. The row is maybe hundreds or thousands of guys long and at least eight guys deep. You want to at least eight ranks deep, although it could be much, much deeper. So you line these guys up close together so their shields are pretty much touching. There's a big wall of shields, and in the right hand, they're stabbing with their spear. And you take your huge long line of spear guys, and you stand them across a field from another big long line of spear guys, if you're fighting another Greek city. You sing a few songs, you have a few drinks. If you're a Spartan, you comb your hair before battle, and then you walk at each other, stabbing. And whoever stabs the most wins. Usually what happens is, at some point, one side will break through the line, do some killing, the other side will run, they lose. It's a simple form of warfare, but it's very effective. The Greek phalanxes were winning basically all the land battles against people who didn't use this form of warfare. And if you want to build a phalanx, which you need to if you're in ancient Greece... You need hoplites. Who are the hoplites? They were those independent farmers I was telling you about. And now we can put together these first two pieces of the puzzle, economics and warfare. Because with the exception of the Spartans, and they were weird, these guys weren't professional soldiers. The hoplite army was a citizen militia. They were farmers or even craftsmen. And sometimes when there was a war, they got their spear and shield out of mothballs and they went to fight for the city. But they had to provide their own gear. And it wasn't cheap. Being a hoplite was medium expensive. But these new independent farmers, if they were reasonably successful, could afford it. The new, slightly more distributed economy made hoplite warfare possible because it created a class of people who could and would fight as hoplites. And they're going to become the free, self-determining citizens. Which brings us to the third piece of the puzzle. Politics. Because we have a group of people now who are economically independent and they play a very important military role in society. And so you might think, of course, they'll also have some political power. That just makes sense. But this doesn't happen automatically. This is always an interesting question to me because even when things seem obvious, political change is not automatic. It is a giant pain in the ass. I have a friend who once described to me the process of having a crossing guard assigned to an intersection near her children's school. And when she got involved, the struggle had already been ongoing for a while. She was involved for years. There were hundreds of meetings and consultations with the city, the school board, the neighborhood association, who knows who else, the fraternal order of crossing guards. I don't know. 
there were changes in government policy in between that threw off their plans. And when she told me about it, she was hopeful about a positive outcome. I knew I would never be able to do something like this. And that is the most minor political change I can imagine. For the hoplites to win their political freedom, we're talking about completely rearranging the political distribution of power in society, a new constitution. In the aristocracy, they've ruled for centuries. They have good birth and tradition and custom all going in their favor. Changing that is a lot to undertake. When I imagine myself as a hoplite farmer living under a traditional aristocracy, my main concern is the farm. I'm not that political. I care about my olive crops, my grapes, my goats. I'm not thinking about constitutional reform. So what gets the ball rolling? Where does the motivation come from? We don't have the origin stories of every polis in ancient Greece, but we have enough that we can kind of piece together a typical origin story for these cities. Imagine a situation in which you have this class of independent hoplite farmers. They own their own farms, they fight in the army, but they don't yet have much political power. Now, imagine that the independent farmers have made all the easy improvements to agriculture that they could, but the population has gone up to eat up the surplus, and with more mouths to feed, they're feeling the squeeze. Some of them are struggling. Some of them have to sell off their property. Some of them go into debt. And that includes debt bondage, which was very hated and very common in ancient Greece. This is basically when you borrow money and you say, if I can't pay it back, I'll become your slave. And to make the picture even nastier, if you're at the point where you're offering your own freedom as a bond, there's a fair chance you've already pawned some of your children into slavery. And as shitty of a parenting strategy as that sounds, if your choice is between watching them starve under your care or finding them a decent master, the second one might make sense. Which is all to say that there are tough times for the hoplites. They were feeling an economic squeeze. And they're thinking, we're respectable members of the community. We put our lives in the line for the city. We should be able to live a decent life and feed our kids. Is that too much to ask? And so they ask. And there are two political demands that come up again and again throughout the ancient world whenever there's a political movement by non-rich people. And the first one is land reform, which is just the redistribution of land, break up some of the giant aristocratic estates and give people small parcels of land that they can live on. And the second demand is debt relief. Because anyone who's ever had them will tell you, Student law! There is just this grinding sense of frustration and despair when people are working as much as they can and paying everything they get out to their creditors. And of course, debt bondage also caused particularly strong feelings. So the people are asking for land reform and debt relief, and the aristocrats probably say something like, Debt relief? Well, we didn't force loans on anyone. Loans usually help people, but... Some people are no good with money, and that's not our fault. If we just cancel all the debts, we're giving money away, and there will be no incentive for any credit in the future. And when it comes to land reform, they would probably say, you want us to give away our land? This is ours. It's been in our family since time immemorial, 
or we bought it fair and square from a willing seller? Why should we just give it away because other people can't take care of their own affairs? And if you're on the hoplite side of the argument, and you can't pass any laws for debt relief or land reform, and the aristocracy won't do it, they keep blocking you, you might start thinking, well, why is it up to them anyway? Don't we contribute to the city too? Don't we fight? And you start pushing for more political rights. And now, if you're the aristocrat in this situation, you're going to think that middle-class demands for political power are even more ridiculous than their wish for free money. Because you were born to this. Your dad did it. Your granddad did it. Your great-granddad was related to Ajax. You were prepared your whole life to rule, and it is your right. And you are not going to let a bunch of small-time olive jockeys with dirt under their fingernails start telling you what to do. If you're an aristocrat who feels like you're entitled to rule, giving any power to the middle or lower classes is going to feel like a usurpation. It's going to feel like you're being stripped of your rights. Which is why people in power tend to resist any redistribution of power. And this conflict between the hoplites and the aristocracy, that can go on for generations. But eventually, sometimes the pressure gets to be enough that you have a real break. In English, the word stasis means balance or standing still. In Greek, stasis referred to civil war or civil strife. It means there's fighting in the city, things aren't going well, and almost always, these intracity conflicts are fought along class lines. Nobody really likes it, it's a bad time for everyone, but it's also the only way I know that anyone in ancient Greece broke the power of an entrenched aristocracy. Class war gave Greece freedom. And the precise results of these conflicts between the classes were different in different cities. In general, you don't get a complete purge where they're just killing every aristocrat they can get their hands on. Actually, the aristocratic families remain rich and powerful throughout Greece, but you do get a significant transfer of power from a very small circle of aristocrats who ruled by birth and tradition to a larger group of independent citizens who rule themselves collectively. And when the hoplites get a bigger say in politics, this becomes an important part of their identity and their culture and ideology, and you get this ideal of a group of patriotic and independent citizens who recognize no master above themselves. They proudly defend the polis and only recognize the laws that they themselves have made. And anything else is despotism. So that is the basic framework for the polis and Greek political freedom. But that doesn't decide everything. There is still a lot up for grabs once you get rid of the monopoly of the aristocracy. And this is where the philosophical action is. Plato, Aristotle, other thinkers, when they're thinking about politics, they're talking about life in the polis and how to organize it. Who should get to be a citizen? Is it everyone? Just the rich? How rich do you have to be? What powers should the people have? What powers should the aristocracy keep? What should the institutions look like? How do all these decisions promote or prevent human flourishing? And these thinkers... They're not reasoning in a vacuum. They were looking around them at over a thousand polis in ancient Greece. And within the general framework that we've outlined today, there was a lot of variety. 
And that's what we're going to be getting into in the next few episodes. We're going to look at two of the most praised and criticized and generally philosophized about polis in ancient Greece, Sparta and Athens. This episode was brought to you by Patreon sponsor Cheyenne Tryanov. And thanks to Sepeda for episode art, social media, and editorial help. And thanks to Melody and Justine and Kristen and Stefan and Andrew and David and everyone else who listened to and gave feedback to early drafts of these episodes. I would not have been able to launch without your help. And thank you for listening. If you like what we're doing here at Good In Theory, please tell a friend about it. We're trying to spread the word. But if you don't like what we're doing here, Tell an enemy. Use us against them. And to end today's episode, I just want to say a little word in favor of a category of people that I think do not always get the credit that they deserve. I'm talking, of course, about tyrants. People hardly ever say anything good about tyrants. It's almost a term of abuse. They just have this idea of a man who swoops in out of nowhere, steals absolute power, and then abuses it as hard as he can. Tyrants are jerks, and they steal, and they kill, and they have parties that are way too wild. And this is a stereotype that has been around for a long time. And it's firmly in place by the time Plato is writing. But it wasn't just a couple generations before him. Originally, Tyrannus just meant someone who got into power not through the legitimate channels. It didn't necessarily mean they were evil. And tyranny was a common transitional phase from the old aristocratic systems to the new hoplite-ruled systems. When the hoplites were upset and they couldn't get debt relief or land reform and they were ready to start really pressing their demands on the old guard, they need a leader. And they look around and a lot of the tyrants were former leaders in hoplite armies. They would pick a leader, put him into power, and that was the most common path to tyranny. And once these guys are in power, they don't necessarily go crazy. A lot of them did really great things for the city. They build up trade, introduce standardized weights and measures. They build public works, stone temples, fix the water supply. And often there's a transfer of wealth to themselves, obviously, but also to the classes of people who supported them. And a lot of these tyrants were well-loved in their day. Athens had a really famous tyrant called Pisistratus, and a lot of people regarded his rule as a kind of golden age for the city. And although his rule wasn't democratic, he definitely helped break down the power of aristocracy and prepare the conditions for democracy in the future. Good things don't ever last. Tyrants usually like to pass on power to their sons, and then the citizens start thinking, well, maybe it's time for us to take over. And once they do that, once they throw out the tyrant, the people don't like tyrants anymore because they're the legitimate power and they don't want any illegitimate powers taking over. But that doesn't mean that tyrants didn't help them get there. And I bring this up not because I love tyrants and I'm trying to be counterintuitive. I do it because tyrant is a dirty word that makes people think automatically of evil villain. And it's used on anyone who successfully fights the status quo. But no tyrant ever came to power without support. They all represent some 
constellation of interests that are broader than their own. And how you feel about a tyrant is going to depend a lot on how you feel about that set of interests as compared to the interests of the status quo. If the powers that be are an entrenched elite that won't give up any of their privileges while the people are getting crushed, like in the old Greek aristocracies, then a good tyranny may be the only thing that can make them listen.